Hey, welcome to the Africa Podcast. On today's episode, we feature a conversation between me, Mikey Mhenna, and Professor Rinwa Hayek from the University of Chicago. Rinwa's work focuses on modern Arabic literature. This conversation was originally recorded on Zoom at one of our events on December 15th, 2020. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining. My name is Mikey Mann. I'm the executive director of Afikra. Um, and today we have our special guest, Renoir, who is calling from, I think, from Chicago. I am very honored to welcome our guest, Renoir Hayek, who is an associate professor of modern Arabic literature from the late 19th century to the present. Her work deals with the entangled relationship between literary, literary and cultural production, space and place, and identity formation in the modern Arab Middle East. Uh, Sorry. With a focus on Lebanon. Um, we're going to get through your work. You have um, done a lot of interesting stuff, so I'm excited to have you on the show. Renoua, thank you so much for joining Africa Conversations. Thanks for having me, and um, thanks to all of you for being here. And a shout out to my students, um, especially Perfect. former students who don't have to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have them on here, too. <laughs> So, um, Renoir, let's start with a little bit of a sort of biographical question. Sure. What brought you into um, studying this work, um, and specifically with a focus on Beirut? Um, so, I grew up in Beirut. Um, for those of you who know the city, um, I actually... I uh, was raised in um, Bechabib, which is a village in the mountains, but uh, my schooling uh, all happened in Ras Beirut. I went to IC and then to AUB, so I crossed through the gate and went to college. So I spent many, many years in Beirut. It's still home. Um, and like any, I think, um, good Lebanese kid, I was supposed to be a scientist or a doctor. Um, but uh, two years into college, I realized that was not um, for me. And I have um, very lucky to have parents who understood my decision to become an English major. I so I turned... How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> so I transferred. Um, AUB at the time I attended it did not really have a robust um, modern Arabic program. And so uh, I, I, and, um, I mean, for those of you who are familiar with schooling in Lebanon, it isn't very Arabic intensive if you go to a school like IC. So I didn't really read any modern Arabic novels until I went to do my master's and felt very homesick. And I discovered an entire world that I had never heard of that was super fascinating, where people were having amazing ideas and writing. I mean, I've always loved books, but, but I realized that, you know, people who wrote in Arabic also wrote really interesting things. And I, that's what spurred me to um, become a comparatist um, and to think about um, what it means when people who write in different languages um, focus on particular topics. I didn't really stumble into the Beirut part of this project until quite late in my graduate studies. I, I came to Be back to Beirut to do um, research in the archives in 2006. And uh, after the war decided that I, need, I wanted to suspend uh, my return to the U.S. and my graduate schooling. Um, I wasn't even sure if I wanted to continue with my Ph.D. Um, and I spent two more years in Beirut in a moment where there were many intense conversations about the city and about whose city it was um, that triggered my curiosity. I mean, as a child of the 90s, and early to the, and a sort of young adult in the early 2000s in Beirut, these conversations were always with us. And I became really interested in how quickly they had shifted um, from the 90s to the mid to late 2000s, the, the sort of the way we were, people were talking about the city. And that sort of spurred my curiosity to find out how, how have people really been talking about Beirut since the founding of Beirut or since the sort of rise of modern Beirut. And that's how I came into my topic. Yeah, I loved, I love, I think there's a great uh, moment to sort of jump into this idea of, of this book, the thesis of this book. Um, yeah. And I think the first question I can sort of start with is, as I was reading through a lot of your work, and I mentioned this to you before the call, 
there was there's this idea of or this term that you use which is imagined geographies right and maybe you can speak a little to that term what that term means and in what way is beirut an imagined geography and maybe a little well, bit more broadly i mean i would really say any place that we talk about or think about is kind of an imagined geography in the sense that uh, there's a disconnect between how we think about a particular place and how we experience it in our day to day. And this disconnect is particularly true, I think, if you're if you're in any kind of cultural production, because, for example, it, um, you know, a, a book leaves out a book set in contemporary Beirut will leave out, for example, unless they really want to, but mostly leave out uh, constant kahraba interruptions and the potholes and the guy with, uh, you know, with uh, honking the horn at like two o'clock in the morning and the sort of noise of the city and how irritating it can be to live in it. Uh, you know, films about. Uh, California, where I also spent a bit of time in Southern California, films that depict Los Angeles will, will um, in their sort of opening scenes, will show you a Los Angeles that doesn't really exist, right? So you get the impression that you can go from um, the Hollywood sign to the beach in three minutes, right? It, and whereas really the reality is you spend two and a half hours in traffic gridlocked in order to move anywhere around that city. So, so all places are, um, humans imagine and represent place in a particular way. Um, and I think that this is, and they attach meaning to those places that are imagined. So that's, I think that's my clumsiest description of what yeah, an imagined that's, geography is. No, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. perfect. Um, yeah. I guess, how has Beirut uh, changed in our sort of cultural imagination um, over the last maybe, you know, you said modern Beirut, maybe try to define what modern Beirut is and how it's sort of changed in that time? So uh, this is a really difficult question. Um, I don't know if I can actually answer how modern Beirut has changed. Yeah. Um, I think what I tried to do in the book um, is to show that it has, even as people continue to say, uh, you know, nothing, I mean, and in some ways that's true, nothing changes in Beirut. So you read 19th century descriptions of Beirut and they're like, you know, everyone in Beirut, Beirut is dancing on, you know, uh, on its own ruins and everything is going to fall apart. And, you know, the city is just occupied with itself and with its own entertainment. And it's, you know, they're not occupied with science and knowledge and, you know, and things are going to go wrong. And, and you hear this moralistic, uh, definition of the city even till today you know like you know the lebanese they're always partying they don't care about anything blah 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 and at the same time you know so there are some things that um that that come back they're very dynamic and and there are some things that change i mean i think we all maybe less people who are younger than i am but i grew up during the war and then with parents who spoke about the beirut before the war all the time and um you know and would often say you know it was this amazing place you know you could wander around the Aswe and the Buraj and it was wonderful and vibrant and and of course these stories it, it might be true this is how they experienced them but um they're also a particular kind of of nostalgic imagining of a city that probably wasn't quite like that, right? And when they're imagining it, when people of my parents' generation are imagining it, they're not thinking about, for example, um, uh, um, the, the sort of enclosures of poverty around the city or that it might not have felt the same way for someone who was uh, born and raised in a refugee camp or um, on the outskirts or, you know, so so I've always been interested in, in sort of trying to uncover in that particular moment, what were the things that were being said and how they were being said and what were the feelings that attached to the particular kinds of descriptions? And I think the Beirut of today, I mean, Beirut this year has been particularly sad. Yeah. Um, it's very difficult to, to sort of be far away and watch what's happening. Yeah. Uh, but even the Beirut of you know 2015 was different than 
um, it had been 10 years ago, right? Um, and different to what it was like before I left for grad, grad school in 2003. Yeah. So, my, yeah. Like my impression is that there's, a, there's, an, a, there's an illusion of stasis, right? That things have always been this way. Even, even an illusion that Beirut has been the most important city in what is now considered Lebanon, that alone is a huge illusion, right? Um, Correct. That's a falsehood. Um, yeah. And so one of the other terms that you mention in this book that I love um, is mountain romanticism, right? Right. Um, and this, the duality between the rural in, which, in Lebanon, which is often uh, related to the, the mountains, um, and the urban, um, and those two spaces. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, walk me through the, what you're trying to unpack um, in the book with that, that concept. So, so mountain romanticism is, is an amazing term. It's not my own. It's um, Chris Stone's and Jens Hansen's. And, um, but the idea is, well, the idea was that um, until the creation or, um, of, uh, or until Lebanese independence, so until about the mid-century, the dominant way of describing Lebanon was, by de was describing the mountain, right? The mountain as a site of purity, of wonderful... If we think about, for example, the uh, novels of Emil Rihani, or we think about the stories of... Uh, or the stories of Emil Rihani, if we even think about... Um, Gibran, if we think about some of the poetry that comes, you know, uh, from the French uh, schools in the 1920s, so Charles Curum, La Montagne, and Spire, it's all about creating an image of Lebanon that is about the mountain and the sort of purity of the mountain folk and the greatness of the mountain, right? It's, it's, it's very entwined also with um, a kind of identity that people wanted to create for Lebanon and the Lebanese. And it's, to be fair, a mostly sectarian identity at the time. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, the broad brushstrokes that we were taught was that, you know, that Lebanese literature is about the mountain. And when I started investigating, I realized, like, when I went back to uh, the mid to late 19th century, I realized that people were writing novels about Beirut all the time at a moment where Beirut itself was becoming a city. And, and that was really interesting, right? They were, they were sort of thinking what it means to be Beiruti, what it means to inhabit the city. Um, they were making distinctions between urban life and rural life that were kind of really interesting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, another way to think about this is also, I don't know if you're all familiar with Fairuz and the movies and the yeah. songs which are almost always about the village and how great the village is and how amazing Fairuz's family is because they have real village values. And, you know, and then, you know, something happens, right? And it's obviously, it's parodied in Ziad Rahbeni, her son's work, right? From the 1970s and the 1980s. So even by the 70s, it was a parody. Um, or it was, it, it was, people realized that it was not true. Um, but yet it continues. It continues to be taught it continues to be um, expressed. Um, yeah, much, so that's, that's I think. Uh, when we think about sort of the, the, the work that's being done, the, the literary work that's being done at the early part of the 20th century, how much of it is being written in ex, uh, by people in exile? Or not in exile, but outside of the, the current uh, borders of Lebanon? Quite a lot. Uh, the Lebanese diaspora, especially the Lebanese diaspora in the uh, in North America, and earlier than that in Cairo and Alexandria, play a huge role in um, thinking about and writing about Lebanon. Uh, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that people weren't people based in Lebanon and in Beirut weren't writing. So if you go into the archives of any of the universities in Lebanon, you'll notice just how many journals there were and publications and how many submissions there were of stories and poems. And, um, so people were actively writing in Beirut. They, they just, very few of them had the, the kind of impact that a figure like, for example, Jubran or um, 
Amin Rehani or Mikhail Nahaimi or any of the people that we think of uh, when we think of the Pen Association yeah. um, and yeah. and those diasporic groups. Yes. So um, I don't know in, in, in actual numbers, but a sizable amount of people were writing, men and women. Amazing. Um, so before we move away from this book, um, I'm, I'm curious, like, when you uh, when you structure uh, when you sort of put the book together i'm always interested in uh, asking people who was this book for you know what was the audience what were you trying to um get people to sort of walk away with and keep thinking about and how has it changed in the 10 years i guess maybe 10 years since it came out or six years since it came out uh, about six. Um, yeah. So who was it for? I think that I hoped that it would be read by academics and non-academics. Um, I hope that it would be read by people who are interested in uh, the city and interested in taking seriously some of the things we were just talking about earlier, that it's a dynamic place. It's a place that's imagined in particular ways, certain feelings attached to this imagining. And they're import it's important to notice these feelings and to notice their shifts. And, um, and it really has changed. The, the, the city really has changed. Right. And, um, and I wanted to unpack some of the, the stereotypes around the city, really, most, yeah, I, I just, I got, you know, um, I was frustrated at the time with, uh, with some of the language that was being used to describe Beirut. Um, and I wanted to sort of dive deeper into it. And I hoped that the people who read it would be people who were willing to dive deeper into it with yeah. me. It's amazing. Um, you know, um, one of the things that uh, sort of kept on coming up in the, since August 4th, um, and even before that, since the Sauda really began in Beirut, was this idea, or this falsehood, I think, that Beirut a, is a exclusively Lebanese city. You know, right. um, and that and that the stories are exclusively Lebanese, and that we don't have Filipino stories and Armenian stories and Sri Lankan <laughs> stories and uh, Palestinian and Syrian stories here. Um, right. Have you, as somebody who probably has a sort of finger on the pulse of what's going on in the literature world and sort of cinema world coming out of Beirut, um, do you feel like that is changing um, slowly? Do you see some more of these stories emerge? Huh. That's an interesting question. I mean, I think that um, it, it's a it's a complex question because, for example, the Palestinian experience in Lebanon has been yeah. uh, filmed, described, uh, um, talked about by generations of Lebanese and Palestinians for decades now. Um, so if you think about the documentaries that May Masri and Josh Amal yeah. made in, yeah, in the 60s and the 70s, up until, you know, I think the most recent one was maybe 2015. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the films of someone like Mahdi Flayfil, who is, was born in, in, well, I think technically he wasn't born in Beirut, but he was raised in um I forget which camp. I want to say Ayn al-Halwe, but I'm not 100% sure. And sort of depicts multiple generations of people uh, in the camp, but also leaving and coming back. Um, so, so there are stories that have been represented. Um, and, there, and there are communities that have written their own stories. I wish I could, um, I mean, I'm, I'm certain there must be Filipina stories or Ethiopian stories written in uh, Tagalog or, um, um, you know, Amharic that I cannot read and I cannot access that might be fascinating um, about the experience. But, um, and I will say that, there is a representation now of uh, migrant worker bodies on film, especially that wasn't there before, or that that were 
different kinds of bodies before. So in some of the novels from the 70s and the 60s, there's always a woman who works in the house, but she's often from Akkar or mm. Syria. And in more recent novels, the, uh, migrant labor, um, uh, domestic labor has become more associated with women who come from further away. Um, but they're not really, I mean, they're, these are these are bodies that are in these texts, but they're not really bodies with agency. Like we don't really hear them speak or talk or think. Um, or talk to each other. Or get things, or talk to each other or get things from their perspective. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I mean, I can think of, I mean, I haven't really watched it, but I know that Nadine Lavaki's uh, Capernaum um, has a depiction of several yeah. different kinds of, but I've heard that's problematic. So um, yeah. I can't talk, I can't talk to it until I watch it. So, um, yeah. I yeah, so it's not just about representation. Yeah, one of the reasons why I brought up was I came across this book, I think it's called Invisible lives or it's about uh it's written by a a pakistani um guy who grew up in abu dhabi um and his his parents you know came as um low-wage workers and he grew up there and now he's a Mm -hmm. professor at nyu abu dhabi i believe um and Mm -hmm. a sort of uh, a list of his short stories growing up there yeah, okay, I want to I want to change gears a little bit um, and talk about some of your other work um, and specifically this uh, this paper um, that you know is about uh, this one short story um, or novel is it a novel or it's a novel yeah it's uh, a, novel. a novel called yeah. the story of Zahra rather sorry excuse me and it this paper has like two two pieces to it right there is this one idea about um, that you're trying to unpack about how the um, how sort of Arab voices or Lebanese voices can tend to otherize or um, you know um, fail in depicting uh, the lives of Africans who the, uh, are characters in the book. Um, but then at the same time, it's also talking about the the, um, the shortcomings of translation. Um, two maybe uh, distinct things, but I'm really 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 interested. Um, so. Can you um, tell us a little bit about why you were drawn to this story and what I just got wrong about what you were trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think you. I think you actually. Um, I mean, I think your your reading was quite astute. So, for those of you who've not read it, Hikayat Zahra is a very famous novel from the start of the Lebanese uh, civil war. Hanan al-Sheikh is one of the sort of most esteemed uh, Lebanese novelists of her generation. And Hikayat Zahra was one of the first novels written by a woman about a woman's experiences during that particular conflict, right? So along with Ghada Saman um, and a few other women, uh, female authors later, uh, Hikayat Zahra tells the story of a woman who is, we, we understand that she's Shia, um, we understand that she is lower middle class, and she's, uh, she, she lives, uh, she has she has some kind of mental illness. We're not sure what it is. She lives with her family. Her family are awful. Um, at the beginning of the war, um, she, for a while, uh, tries to escape her family by going to visit her uncle in uh, an unnamed West African country. Uh, she gets married. She gets divorced. She comes back. She starts an affair with a sniper, and he uh, eventually becomes pregnant by him, and then he, uh, he kills her. He's a sniper. I think you're supposed to say spoiler alert. (laughs) Sorry, spoiler (laughs) alert. (laughs) I just, I just saved you reading the story of Zara. No, I mean it's a classic. Um, So, um, so. Um, almost immediately after its publication, so in the mid-80s, people started writing about Hikayat Zahra. It was, it's an electrifying mm-hmm. novel. There's, there's many things about it that are fascinating. By the time I got around to reading it in about you know, the mid-2000s, I had heard so much about it. I read it, and I realized that a good 35% of the novel takes place in this West African country, um, but no one writes about it. None of its critics write about it. Mm. And, um, and then 
I, I mean, at the time, I wasn't really that interested in that particular topic because I was working on my Beirut book and I wanted to sort of focus on the Beirut parts of it. Um, but but it just kept gnawing at me. And then, um, you know, I read the book in Arabic and I read the book in translation and I saw that there was a big difference between... Um, there's, there's a really interesting sort of shift in the language between the English and the Arabic. Um, recently, I just saw a Twitter thread that was really fascinating. Uh, someone had noticed that, uh, for example, um, in all of the sexual assault that takes place in Arabic, all of the words that describe forced sexual encounters in English are translated as made love. So it's a problematic translation for many reasons. But for me, what I found most interesting was the way that it translated um, some of the quite racist turns of phrase that the characters use to describe um, people who are um, African um, in the novel and the way that in the English that shifts, that changes, right? So it, it's really watered down. So it seems more PC. And sort of the extra, the more in, most interesting part of this for me is that um, the book, it's claimed was co-translated by the author mm -hmm. and uh, this man, this shadowy man who may or may not have been the queen's, the royal translator in England and may or may not have worked in intelligence. It's People have been trying to track him down for years and it's very difficult <laughs> to track wow. him down. So yeah, so that's, that's, so the, the 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 article was written with the sort of trying to sort of reinsert um, that entire um, African part of it and the sort of to reckon with um, the gaps in our own scholarship and how we look at Arab novels and to sort of think about the translation right this to sort of like you said to juggle between these two aspects of it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to read just one quote that you write in the, the, the paper, because I think you do a great job. You say, I would argue that it's incumbent upon us to think more critically about Zahra's imaginative, uh, imaginative geography and the way its language represents African men as nameless drunkards, um, its women as mute sex objects, and its environment as, as one that infects or pollutes the bodies and minds of Lebanese immigrants. Um, yeah. Did you get any pushback? Uh, Against this, um, what was the sort of reaction? No, but I haven't really presented it in Lebanon. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, no, so, th so this and the, the articles on cinema are part of a longer project, a book I'm, I'm currently writing about um, emigration in Lebanon and Lebanese culture and the particular ways that... Um, um, Emigration to Africa is depicted in uh, a variety of Lebanese cultural productions from film to novels, uh, to plays, to poems. And, and the way that the continent of Africa then becomes the way in which Lebanese culture, mainstream culture projects um, its own fears about emigration back to itself um, by sort of... Um, Creating these characters, these often these quote-unquote Lebanese characters who return to Lebanon sick or damaged or blackened in particular ways, and and uh, it, it's sort of been an um, it's been a journey, a fascinating journey, um, and of course it's a journey that forces you to contend with very real racism, right, and and um, the repercussions of language that we use thoughtlessly or that people use thoughtlessly, and to to. And without justifying it or excusing it in any way, to sort of think critically with that, that discomfort, to sit with that discomfort and think of what could it mean? Why, why you know, I mean, yeah, I don't know if I have an answer, but yeah. It's funny because the, the act of translation in many ways, I think... I can see how the act of translating it um, reveals reveals these biases, right? These really problematic right. biases, beca because all of a sudden it's like um, it's out of context, and we're so right. used to that context, right? And right. so we don't hear we don't hear it. And when it's translated, all of a sudden you you feel like you have to um, 
dress down the racism to be like, oh, I didn't mean rape. I meant made love, you know? <laughs> right. Or I, I, I mean, I did not translate Abid and Abid um, it, to an offensive English term, but turn them into gypsies because I don't want to sort yeah. of deal with, you know, and what does that mean about the, about that, the sort of the racial implications of using a term like gypsy in an Anglophone context, right? Um, yeah, sometimes I will say that when I, when I talk about especially, um, I mean, it's, it's always interesting, the translation, but when I talk about one of the interesting things in Zahra in language is that Hanan al-Sheikh is very deliberate in the Arabic about when she's using Aswad or Zanji and when she's using Abd. And she really wants to use Abd to be as derogatory and as awful as um, as that word really mean, it really is. Um, she uses it, I mean, her characters use it to hurt each other and to hurt other people. Um, and so translating it all into the same word sort of reduces that and it also makes it seem as if this text is not aware of how these words mean things in Lebanese culture and are used violently um and so yeah sometimes I do get pushback when I when I sort of bring out the um uh, you know abid and what and the the use of that derogatory term which means slave to describe any person of african descent in arabic and then i'm like and then there's always the people who will say but abdullah just means you know the slave of god you know it's not it's not racist or offensive it's just um you know it's just the word that we use which is not true yeah it is racist and offensive. Like, yes. If his name's Abdullah, you can call him Abdullah. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I wanted to. I wanted to talk about this paper about this trilogy. I don't. We have a lot of really good questions in the chat, so maybe we'll come back to it in the chat. Um, Thank you for asking questions, everyone. Yeah. So let's actually get to the quick Q and A, and then we'll open up to the open up to the chat. So, okay. what are you reading or watching right now? Oh, I just started Paranormal. Hmm. Um, I am uh, reading uh, detective fiction, not in Arabic. Um, I'm hoping to read um, um, some uh, Yusuf Hapshil Ash'ar over Christmas break, but I need some time. Um, okay, that's enough. Cool, perfect. <laughs> Who would you love to shadow past or present? Ah, this is a really good question. Um, I think I would really have loved to spend a day with Salim Bustani, who um, was uh, lived in Beirut in the late 19th century. He uh, was the editor and publisher of a journal called Ajinan. He's the son of a much more famous father, Butrus, who wrote, hmm. um, you know, who wrote uh, Nafir Surya, which was a polemic about the 1860 war, but also uh, was instrumental in translating the Bible uh, into Arabic and also a, um, a he wrote the encyclopedia Wait, why why the son not the father it sounds like the father is well Salim Salim edited a Jinan <laughs> and then wrote these wonderful and wonderfully insane novels Cool. Um, wow. He was very active. He died when he was 44. So he out, he only outlived his dad by a year. Uh, very tragic. And he wrote some of the earliest uh, novels in Arabic. So um, they're all romance novels. They're all lurid. Like people are always having like intense emotions and fainting. Mm. And, you know, the, the first one, Al-Hiyam Fijinan al-Sham, involves like uh, cross-dressing and pirates and people getting kidnapped by Bedouin. I mean, it's just a bit nuts. And I just think he would have been a fascinating person to shadow and... Uh, and sure. Yeah, and, you know, see Beirut in, like, the late 19th century would have been interesting. I'm sold. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. What do people most misunderstand about your work or, or your line of work, either one? Oh, my line of work. Uh, they think, either one, either uh, one, your work or your line of work, whatever you like. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if, I mean, I... I don't know if I have a solid idea of what people mis misunderstand about my own work, but my line of work, I mean, you know, everyone thinks that people who are literary scholars just sit around and 
read books all day. And people have a very strange um, idea of what university professors do, including my own family who don't think I actually work um, because they don't understand, you know, how we have so much time off and, um, <laughs> Why aren't you coming you know, more often? <laughs> yeah, well, not just that, but you know, like you, you don't really, you know, you don't, you don't do anything. You teach that one class for one hour every day, and then you just go home, right, and do nothing. Yeah. So yeah, I think that that that's mostly professionally what people most misunderstand about okay. my work. That all I do is read, and I think that literature represents reality, and that um, I don't actually work. I do work. Okay. Just that one. You, you heard it here first. She works. Yes. Um, whose work do you admire or are inspired by? This one is also a really good and really difficult one. Um, I think that I thought about this, and I think that the person I owe the most to intellectually is uh, Raymond Williams, who um, I've, I'm in good company here because um, Edward Said was also a big fan. And I think that yeah, you, a quote lot him, of, you quoted him in the book, right? I do. I quote him a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, what I admire the most about his work is that it's very eclectic. It makes a case for the importance of culture in, in understanding the world um, and not in a simple way, but it, he actually makes a case for the fact that cultural production is a form of production is a, and it participates in shaping our world. And so we need to pay attention to it. And he's also, and to him, I owe, I think this, that, and also the sense that in order to pay attention to it, we really have to pay attention to language, have to pay attention to words, and we have to pay attention to what those words mean for the people who use them and what they inspire in the people who hear them and read them and think about them. And that's not just intellectually, but also feelings. So he, he was really very sort of, he's very foundational to a field that we now think of as affect studies. So uh, scholars who pay attention to feelings, um, which has not always been true. And so, yeah, I think that, that if I had to pick one person, that would be the person. Cool. Okay. Um, we are going to open up the Q&A in the chat. I, we have a bunch okay. of people. Um, Farah, you're up first. Do you want to unmute yourself? There you go. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Farah. Hi, Renwa. This was uh, super fascinating. I feel like I've learned so much. Um, <laughs> 40 minutes. It's really cool. Uh, and if you ever need help going through archives or something, please let me know. Okay. Um, the question I have is, do you feel like we're now creating this new version of uh, nostalgia, like before and after the August 4th blast? As in we have like another generation that is now kind of reminiscing about a previous version of Beirut? Um, I mean, I think that's inevitable. Um, and I think that one of the things that's really interesting about the August 4th blast is that um, it, 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 it does a couple of things, right? First of all, I doubt anyone has ever paid, uh, paid attention to the port area as much as they have since August, right? Even before August, that, that entire area was mostly out of um, the general imagining of the city, um, especially in, in recent times. And I think that, um, but the areas around the port, so Jemeze, Maram Khayel, uh, were, were very much a part of the social fabric of a certain kind of Beirut lifestyle. And, uh, and yes, for the, uh, and obviously there's, there's, you know, sort of no glossing it. This is a huge catastrophe for everyone in the city and for the people of those neighborhoods and a loss for the young people who, who love these spaces, who thought of them as spaces of liberation, as spaces of, you know, art and creativity. And, but I'll, I'll also say that I'm, I'm sort of really intrigued by the way, for example, that people are talking about those areas, but less so about like a place like Carantina, which was mm -hmm. equally affected, right? So it'll be interesting in a few years, I think, to, to once these, um, um, once the crisis is less immediate, to, to sort of see, at least interesting for me, to see what spaces stick and become a, become a short, what, what 
What space has become a shorthand in the same way that for my parents' generation, for example, Burj is a shorthand for a certain kind of um, life. And for people um, who are student activists in the cities of Hamra is a certain kind of life. Um, so, yeah, I'd be curious about that. But yes, for sure. Okay, sorry about that. There was a problem with the mic. Um, first, thank you so much, Professor Hayek, for the wonderful talk. So my question is very very general, uh, just um, kind of about uh, the director Maroon Baghdadi's work, which I'm sure, I'm sure you're familiar with, mm -hmm. in constructing like also the kind of Im imagination of Lebanon. And I'm thinking in particular his film uh, Hamsat with Nadia Twaini, which kind of shows yeah. a fragmented Beiruti society that's also dispersed all around Lebanon, but also, you know, speaking their narrative experiences that's kind of like tying this fabric of like the kind of a creation of a Beiruti identity within the film. Right. So just thinking about how those films are resurfacing now on Netflix and there's like mm -hmm. more uh, kind of talk about it. Do you, do you feel like this attempt to kind of, you know, for his, for his work to resurface is also an attempt to kind of strengthen our image of a Lebanese unity today? Oh, that's a really good, uh, fascinating question, Robert. Thank you. And um, um, hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think that the decision to uh, put the films up on Netflix well, first of all, I welcome it because, you know, these films have been really hard to find. And so as someone who's interested in cinema, I'm always excited when earlier cinema um, appears on, on streaming platforms. Um, are they an attempt to create unity? I, I'm not 100% sure because I'm not 100% sure who the audience for Netflix is. And so it's difficult for me to sort of assess that. Um, I will say that I think that those films in particular uh, play a very specific role in um, the way people in Lebanon and in the West imagine Beirut. And Hamasat particularly was fascinating because it was, it seems to have been sponsored by a bank, which, um, and uh, I think Bank Med actually, or whatever Bank Med was before it became Bank Med. Um, and the, the, I mean, it, it really is a slice of life of the elite, right? And one of the distressing things is how many members of that elite are still the elite today and sort of still around <laughs> making messes. Um, but yeah, so, but, it, but it also gives us some of the most um, enduring uh, iconography of Beirut, especially the Aswet with like all the ruins and stuff. And that is an image that lasts way past the war and is, is how a lot of people what a lot of people think about Beirut when they think about Beirut. So, yeah, but as you, much as, like, in terms of unity, I don't know. Next, Sally. Yes, hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for this uh, fascinating discussion, Dr. Haig. Thanks, thank Sally. <laughs> so, uh, I have a question here about... Uh, uh, Yes, but why is there uh, anxiety uh, towards uh, Beirut and its representation uh, in contemporary literature? Is it social or political anxiety or simply nostalgia towards uh, better times, maybe towards uh, better uh, past? Um, Thanks, Sally. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, when I uh, defended this project, it was my dissertation. Uh, people uh, there were like, well, you know, you seem to write what you know. And apparently I'm a very anxious person because my next project is also about anxiety. <laughs> so uh, I think for me, I, I think for me, uh, this anxiety is about all of the above, Sally. I mean, we, we you know, don't know where we're going. Uh, you know, there's a sense, for example, in the comics that I look at in the last chapter of my book, they were mostly written after 2006. And um, I look at comics as an, a new way of writing about the city that is a development from older ways of writing about the city. So the sort of the romance novel or the novel of the war or the novel of history, um, the historical novel, and then comics. And I, I try to connect these kinds of writing that erupt in certain moments of the, of the city's life with what's happening on the ground. And comics became a way for me to understand 
that post-2006 moment between 2006 and 2010, when people weren't sure what was going on, you know, like there was 2008, there was, you know, just before, um, there was a lot of violence and there was a lot of tension and it was a lot of tension about the future and tension in the present. And the stories that a lot of these comics are about children um, realizing that they have more in common with their parents than they thought because the war of 2006 uh, that they experience as adults for the first time. These are children of war. They realize what their parents did to keep them safe and how they must have felt when when they these authors themselves were children. And so a lot of them is about are about intergenerational understanding. And the, and what does it mean to have to understand? war twice across generations and what does this mean for a future generation to have to understand that at any moment violence can happen in the city and i think that this creates and produces and represents a kind of anxiety so this is, i mean my best word for it is anxiety it might not be a great word but it's but it is about those things it's about like we live in a precarious place right um even before 2020, you don't know um, if your job is stable. You don't know if, you know, your landlord is going to kick you out. You don't know if the, you know, if you have electricity to wash your clothes, you don't, you know, like all of these things, they create a kind of anxious writing. It's true. Yeah. Um, okay. Thanks so much, Sally. Uh, we have Asya. Asya. Um, yes. Thank you so much, Professor Hayek and Mikey for hosting this talk. Um, so my question is regarded to, let's say, rather cinema and like film studies. So we often say that cinema or maybe visuals, they kind of have this better representation of Lebanon and how it is. But then at the same time, we have examples in literature where there is this also like this raw um, narrative, perhaps if we can look at um, post uh, like civil war narratives, for example, I don't know Elias Houdi's um, white faces, but then we can we never find that adaptation of literature is like um, this much predominant in the region or in Lebanon. And why is that? Why are the like ties between both domains still shy? That's a brilliant question, and I wish I knew the answer because I think now that you mentioned it, like I think an adaptation of um, white masks would be fantastic. Like I think it could be a movie, but it could also be sort of a, a, a series. Um, why? I, I don't know why. I don't know why, even though, you know, I mean, so a lot of times our Lebanese authors have like Naguib Mahfouz did in Egypt, for example, written film scripts. I would say that cinema in Lebanon is not that developed. Um, there's a particular kind of story about Lebanon that is often told in cinema, and I think it has to do a lot of times with films are very, very, very expensive to produce. The money for cinema often comes from outside Lebanon. People who give this money often are looking for a particular kind of story. And so um, that might explain it. Um, Lebanese novels are more local, more embedded, more difficult to, to bring to the to the cinema in a way that would be interesting I, or perhaps this is what they think perhaps this is what screenwriters and adapters think that it will be more difficult to bring to cinema in a way that would be interesting to um to audiences but i don't really have a very good answer honestly besides that great uh thanks asia uh zena um Zena, i think uh Renoir answered your question about the translator so i'm gonna keep going uh Omar, i'm gonna unmute you yes hi hi dr Renoir. Uh, thank you hi for the fascinating talk um so my question is um do you think the minority representation or actually i should say misrepresentation in in beirut uh is part of a larger story across the um the middle east um, whether that is uh, in the Gulf countries or in Tunisia or other, uh, elsewhere. And um, what, uh, how would you envision kind of like correcting this misrepresentation? 
Oh, well, I think the correcting of the misrepresentation needs to happen through uh, education and education needs to happen, you know, very early and very often and a lot. I mean, the way, for example, that children are brought up um, by uh, migrant women whose lives they are, you know, sort of completely uncurious about and whose lives their parents are uncurious about and are often disrespected. Um, I mean, the kafala system is awful and needs to end. I mean, there, there are sort of this, this question is a question that is so much more serious than representation. Um, there are a lot of things in common. It's ironic, for example, that that Lebanese people who work in the Gulf really hate the kafala system when it applies to them, but they don't actually notice that their own government does the same thing to other people. Like they feel entitled to it when it's happening in Lebanon. Um, I, I think what I what I find the most interesting, honestly, about this question is that is are the nuances of this. So um, Tunis and um, other North African countries have, um, because of because they are in the African continent, have had centuries of um, m cultural intermingling that a place like Lebanon, uh, particularly with regards to um, people from North uh, from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, has not, and so Le Lebanon is more ethnically homogeneous. Um, although, of course, that doesn't mean that it's not diverse. It's historically been more ethnically homogeneous. Let's put it this way. And so, um, and so, when the Lebanese started emigrating to uh, West Africa. Um, the, their encounter was framed in a different way than it, than this encounter has been in Morocco or in Algeria or in Egypt with the Sudan, um, but but they're all but they're often sadly racist, right? And there are many amazing people who do this work for the Sudan. There's Iftra Powell um, for uh, Morocco. There's Shukil Hamel, um, and. Yeah, and, and so I don't know if that really answers your question. That was kind of uh, rambly, but um, off the top of my head, that's the best I can do right now. Uh, Renoir, thank you so much for joining. Uh, we've my run out pleasure. of time. This was uh, it Zoomed by, I know pun intended. Um, and um, everyone on the call, thanks so much. I posted two links into the chat. The first is a single question, was this good? If you can answer that and let us know your feedback, that's great. If you'd like to support Africa and help us keep going and growing, uh, please consider becoming a member. Um, and Renoir, thank you so much. This was really great. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious.